May it please the court. My name is Marilyn Ozer. I practice in Orange County, North Carolina. And I'm here this morning representing Wendy Dawn Hicks on her second degree murder conviction out of Randolph County. Wendy Hicks told the 911 operator she had shot Caleb Adams. She told the detectives she shot Caleb Adams. And she told the jurors that she shot Caleb Adams. The only issue before the jury was why she did she shoot in self-defense? And the evidence that's relevant to that one issue is fairly simple and clear cut. On the morning of June 13th, 2017, at 5.59 and 34 seconds in the morning, Caleb Adams texted Wendy Hicks, you'll be lucky if you don't end up in a ditch. That's transcript page 2256. At 6.14 and 18 seconds, Wendy texted, don't come here. That's transcript page 2257. At 6.28 and 41 seconds, Caleb texted, F you. At 6.30 and 39 seconds, Wendy was already talking to the 911 operator, getting instructions for CPR. So we have two minutes between Caleb's last text and when Wendy's on the phone for, with 911. And during those two minutes, Wendy's daughter, April Hicks, who was in a different bedroom in the trailer, heard Caleb yell, I'm going to kill you. She heard her mother being assaulted and being thrown around the room. She did not testify that there was any gap between her mother being assaulted and the shots being fired. The day before he had come in and the same thing had happened, she heard the dog gate in the hallway fall down and then him rushing into his mother's bedroom shouting, I've never hit a bitch but you're gonna, you're pushing me to hit a bitch. That afternoon, Inspector Albright noted bruises beginning to appear on Wendy. That's transcript page 1199. Another relevant fact is that Caleb Adams was very high on meth. It's 1.5 milligrams per liter. Toxicologist testified that would be enough for an overdose and that a bit, the bad side of meth was it caused aggression, paranoia, violence, and psychosis. There's simply no question that this two minute period falls under North Carolina General Statutes 1451.2 and 1451.3. There's also no question that Caleb knew he didn't have permission to enter. In addition to Wendy texting him that morning, don't come here, a couple days before when he was angry about something or other, he texted her, should I drive up there and kick the effing door in? Someone who has a right to be in or is a lawful resident of a house under 1451.2 C1 knows that they do not need to kick the door in to enter. The question for this court this morning 
is how was Wendy Hicks convicted of murder? Why didn't the jury find self-defense? And I would propose that the answer is a combination of the court's erroneous instruction on the aggressor doctrine with the way the state presented the entire dump of Wendy's cell phone, including 200 pages of texts and phones, which painted her as a bad, immoral woman. A bad person equals an aggressor, not self-defense. The combination of these two was absolutely toxic for Wendy Hicks' self-defense. Um, Ms. Ozer, can you respond on the, the issues two and three about the, the evidence that was admitted? The state has argued invited error. He didn't object, but he didn't agree with it. It was not invited error. It was plain error because he failed to object. And that's what we argued, that it should be seen as plain error because this was absolutely egregious. There were over 200 pages in the package. And as this court, I'm sure you're familiar with Hennis. The question is, is, was it too repetitive? And was it displayed in a particularly prejudicial manner? And that's exactly what happened here. The Ms. Ozer, I have a quick question. The um, documents and exhibits that we received at the court were in black and white. Do you know if these documents were produced to the jury um, in color or if they were produced in black and white? The copies I have, I have from the trial attorney and they were in color. Okay. I'm not sure what the jurors saw. They were bad and I think they're pretty bad in black and white as well as in color. Uh, what I was going to say is that under Hennis, which I'm sure this court's familiar with, the question, one of the questions is, was the display unnecessarily prejudicial? And it's important to understand exactly what happened here. The jurors got that packet that you've seen, Judge Wood, handed to them on Tuesday morning before the morning break. It wasn't taken away from them until Thursday morning, right before lunch. And in between Tuesday and Thursday, what was going on was the prosecutor would ask, ask Detective Sibbert a question. He'd say on Bates page, whatever, can you read aloud this text? Or can you see this picture and describe it to the jurors? So the jurors were being directed to a specific Bates page and looking at the pictures. And then uh, Detective Sibbert would explain it. So for example, the prosecutor said to Detective Sibbert, I know this is, we're all looking at them. So it seems silly for me to ask you but could you tell us what they're doing in this instance? And Detective Sibbett responded, one of them is a close-up of them kissing. Second one is a little further away. They appear to be topless, kissing. The third one is them kissing again. That's transcript page 1585. I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so sorry to interrupt your train of thought. And I promise I'll remind us to go right back there. Um, so this, the state argues that when the trial was court was asked to admit these exhibits, that defense counsel said, quote, I don't have an objection. 
That's transcript page 1017. Has the state misrepresented that? Or taken it out of context? I'm agreeing that he did not object, that he went along with it, that he allowed- But isn't saying I don't have an objection different than, I mean, the different than not saying anything? It's not invited error if he doesn't ask for them to be presented. He's just not objecting to them being presented. Okay, and, very well. And I don't understand why. And very unfortunately, in this case, the attorney died suddenly. So we are not going to be able to ever ask him why. But in any case, these pictures were shown the prosecutor would point them out to the jurors and to Detective Sibbert, including the four pictures of explicit sexual activity. Um, one of a penis entering a vagina, another entering an anus. And these pictures originally were little tiny cell phone pictures. What the state did was blow them up to nine by 12 photos. And they're part of this packet. And what I think is really important is the judge never gave the jury any kind of instruction on what they could do with these pictures. So it's more than possible that he, they could have been pointed to page 929, uh, Bates page 929, and leave it open to a pornographic picture because they weren't told not to. So the jurors next to that juror who left it open would be looking at it. And <laughs> under Hennis, this kind of display is unnecessarily prejudicial because there is nothing stopping these jurors from looking at them over and over again. They had them for three days in their lap. The text were also prejudicial because they're 90%, more than 90% irrelevant. They're texts from Wendy to her son talking about sports physicals, Wendy to her daughter talking about her graduation, Wendy to her mom talking about going on a picnic, Wendy to a girlfriend talking, texting about what you text to your girlfriend. And unfortunately it included texts about having sex with other men. It also included Wendy just copying web sayings and passing them on, having nothing to do with the two minutes on June 13th when she was using self-defense, but highly prejudicial because the jury then saw that here is a woman with children that love her, that she is endangering by bringing drug addicts and drug dealers to the trailer where her daughter lived with her. So she was just being pointed as a, painted as a totally immoral person. It's also important that along with the aggressor doctrine, which was read to the jury several times, not just once, and in connection with second degree murder and voluntary manslaughter, before the second degree murder elements were read, the judge instructed that they needed to find that the defendant was not the aggressor. 
he also told them that if Miss Hicks voluntarily and without provocation entered the fight, she would be considered the aggressor. She's not entitled to self-defense if she was the aggressor. I charge an order for you to find Miss Hicks guilty of murder in the second degree. You have to find that she did not act in self-defense or failing in this, that Miss Hicks was the aggressor. That's on pages 25, 48, 49, and 50. Um, Ms. Ozer, if I can just stop you right there on that last line, that they would have to find that she was not acting in self-defense or that, and can you read what you just said again, or that? Sure. That Ms. Hicks did not act in lawful defense of her habitation, and that Ms. Hicks did not act in self-defense or failing in this, that Ms. Hicks was the aggressor. So what does, what does failing in this mean there? If the state did not show that she was, if the state did not show that she was not acting, acting in self-defense. Self so the aggressor they, instruction comes into play if, um, if, if the state shows she was acting in self-defense, self but she she brought it on herself, which is what those 200 pages of text and photos would show the jurors, that she was a bad person, she brought this upon herself, and in that fashion, she was the aggressor. But when it says, if in failing showing this, in failing showing that she wasn't acting in self-defense. So doesn't that mean if you believe she was acting in self-defense? Right, but she was the aggressor. Right, so they would have to, for the aggressor instruction to come into play, they would have to have already decided that the state had not shown that she was not acting in self-defense. Correct. Okay. It's part of the self-defense. It's an exception to self-defense. And this court also instructed that one enters a fight voluntarily if one uses towards one's opponent abusive language, which considering all the circumstances is calculated and intended to provoke a fight. That's on page 2548. But there's no modification to that. There's no explanation that this abusive language, which is calculated to bring on a fight, is limited to those two minutes. It's not the text she sent two weeks ago, which is in the packet. It's not the text she sent the night before even. In order to use abusive language, she would have had to say, it's, it's meant to be two men out on this in a bar and one of them says something to the other one, and that starts the fight. That's not what happened in this case. It's not relevant to this case. Wendy Hicks was still in bed. She hadn't gotten up yet to get dressed to go to work. She was half dressed. When Caleb Adams burst into the room, burst into her bedroom, and started first taking, picking up her gun and pointing it in her face, 
And when he was convinced that she hadn't sent any photos, he puts the gun down or doesn't put the gun down. She asks him to put the gun down. That angers him. And that's when he starts throwing her around the room. So this language about opponent using abusive language was very prejudicial in this case when you tie it into what the state did because they had 200 pages of which contains copious abusive language on both parties. They're continually either fighting or making up or saying horrible things to one another, but there's no limitation in this instruction. So the jurors would have been able to decide that Wendy Hicks was the aggressor because she used language which was calculated to bring on a fight. And there's no question that some of the texts over that two week period were calculated to bring on a fight. But just didn't fit in the context of this two minute period. So the, the state argues that if the jury believed Ms. Hicks acted in self-defense, but believed that she was the aggressor, they would have found her guilty of voluntary manslaughter instead I, of not guilty. I don't exactly understand that in the context of these jury instructions, because it was before the judge read the second degree murder instruction that he repeatedly gives the aggressor doctrine and tells the jury she won't be guilty of second degree murder if she acted in self-defense and if she was not the aggressor. So if she were the aggressor, she'd be guilty of second degree murder. According to the instructions, this jury was given by this court. I don't know how you interpret it any other way. On pages 22, 53, 54, 55, and 56, before the second degree murder elements are read to the jury, they are told that she would be guilty of second degree murder if they find she's the aggressor. And that's what the court says. Ms. Sozer, I want to talk for just a minute. Uh, I don't want to interrupt you. Judge Inman, if she had a no, follow-up. Okay. Um, with the, the aggressor doctrine, you know, I'm I'm looking at Supreme Court's recent holding in in, in Corbett, State versus Corbett, which reinvoked um State versus Cannon, looking at their um my PDF is page 62, but my general question comes down to what is our standard of review? of how much evidence the state needed to put on to be entitled to an aggressor instruction. Is it as low as our standard review when we're considering if the state was entitled to a flight instruction or is it something higher that's required? Um, you know, we, we haven't had any cases that directly say it's the same same as flight, but the, the words that, that get used are, are very similar in, in that it's a very low hurdle for the, for the, the state to carry there. So can, can you explain to me, is it a higher bar than flight? Is it the same? Um, can, can you point me to anything that, that can kind of help me put this in the spectrum of, of where we are on, on how much has to be shown by the state? Well, State v. MUMMA, M-U-M-M-A, 
372 North Carolina 226-2019 says in assess determining whether a self-defense instruction should discuss the aggressor doctrine. The relevant issue is simply whether the record contains evidence from which the jury could infer if the defendant was acting as an aggressor at the time that he or she allegedly acted in self-defense. So it's the same uh, same standard the state has to provide beyond reasonable doubt that well, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt to get the instruction. No, it's so simply, simply, simply whether the record contains evidence from which the jury could infer the defendant was acting as an aggressor. And my argument in the brief and today is that there was no evidence that she was acting as the aggressor. This all took place in two minutes. He's much bigger than she is. The daughter hears him throwing her around the room. The daughter is on the phone with her boyfriend, not just making something up for the jury a year later, but at the time on the phone with her boyfriend giving a play-by-play. -play. There's simply no time for what had to have happened was Caleb had to have indicated that he was abandoning the fight and Wendy Hicks had to understand that that's what he was communicating. That just could not have happened in this well, did, period. What's your answer to the state's argument that um, he indicated he was abandoning the fight by giving up the gun and turning around and walking or running away and that he was shot twice in the back. So can you respond to the state's argument that that those facts would allow the jury to infer that she was the aggressor? He gave, he put the gun back down. Well, he didn't. He was walking away with the gun. It was when she asked him to not leave with her gun. Right that he set it down, but became enraged. That's when the physical assault began. That's what sparked his anger. That's when he started throwing her around the room, throwing her into the mirror against the wall. She wanted to get out. He's a big man, she's smaller. We're talking about a trailer here, not a master bedroom in some golf course estate. There wasn't much space in that room. She testified she wanted to get out. He blocked the door. So we do not know. There's no evidence that he was leaving that bedroom. The only evidence is that he had turned around. He could easily have turned around to pick up something to clobber her over the head with. He could have turned around uh, just looking for something else. Okay. And Ms. Ozer, isn't the evidence supposed to be viewed in light most favorable to the defendant at this point, or is it supposed to be viewed in the light most favorable to the state? For the aggressor doctrine, yes. it's not not in favor of the defendant and it's in favor of the state. state. It's just reasonable doubt. 
So there is a difference between the aggressor doctrine and self-defense as far as that goes. But even if we want to view it in the light most favorable to the state, there is no evidence he was leaving that room. The only evidence is he had turned around. So we have a woman in absolute panic, undressed basically in her bedroom, being thrown around by a man into furniture. He's stomping on her feet. He turns around and she shoots. Really, if you think about it, if she aimed the gun when he was facing her, what would he have done? He would have grabbed it and shot her. She took her chance. We're not talking about some French duel with rules of gentleman's conduct. She was afraid she was going to die. She was trying to save her life. So when he turned around, that was her chance to shoot. He wasn't out of her bedroom for step number one. He wasn't going to leave the trailer. And the other consideration here is that her daughter was in the bedroom down the hall. So if he left the bedroom, maybe what he was thinking of doing was going after her daughter. And she had a right to defend her daughter in her house. Maybe he turned around because he wanted to shut the door because he heard her daughter giving the play-by-play -play to her boyfriend on the phone. Who knows why he turned around? But there is no evidence that he turned around to leave. That's all conjecture. And it's probably not what happened. In the four minutes I have remaining, I just want to ask this court to address what happened in this case. The dumping of all of the cell phone um, text, data, photographs and handing it to the jury, because what this has done is created a separate category for cell phones that are, is different from every other type of evidence that are governed by the rules of evidence. There was no examination for relevance, no examination for prejudice. I mean, imagine if the detectives had gone into a bedroom, taken a photo of all the documents, all the photos around the shelves, copied them and handed them out to the jurors. No one in that courtroom would have thought that was okay. No one, because the rules of evidence for hundreds of years are only relevant documents come in, only relevant photographs. But for some reason, they've cut out a separate niche for cell phones. It's as if the rules of evidence and the constitution don't apply. Now, back in 2014 in Riley v. California, the U.S. Supreme Court explained that while people can't lug around every piece of mail they have received for the past several months, every picture they have taken, or every book or article they have read, that is contained in the cell phone. So it needs special protections. And for this to happen in this case, the result was Wendy Hooks, Hicks, who was acting in self-defense, was convicted of second-degree murder. It shouldn't happen to any other defendant in the future. It needs to be made clear that a cell phone is not an exception to the rules of evidence, that what's in there has to be relevant, and it cannot be grossly prejudicial. 
So does if the court has any other questions, I would just ask that you find that Wendy Hicks was acting in self-defense, that dumping the entire contents of the cell phone, passing it out to the jurors, resized and enlarged, and letting it sit there with them for three days without any instructions on what they were allowed to do with them was reversible error and allow Ms. Hicks to have a new trial. Thank you.